Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. If you're a guest here this morning, I hope that you are encouraged and blessed today as we worship the Lord in prayer and in music. And we're going to do that again now as we open His Word and and uh, go through it. It is um, referring to Alex's uh, comments earlier. It's been a, an issue of prayer since last night. I pray that you continue to lift up the family. That uh, you know, nothing makes your security and your hope more real than the reality of of death. It makes you reach out to those things you know and hold on to them for all your life. And the longer you live, the more often you get to experience that, and it's a difficult thing to do. But uh, keep Alex in your prayers as he will no doubt lead that family as he goes to Kentucky in godliness, that the gospel will go out in clarity, that comfort and and assurance and hope and peace will be part of uh, their experience in this whole thing. We are beginning our study, Instructions for the Church, for Teaching, Leading, and Equipping. It's a study, verse by verse, uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture through First and Second Timothy and Titus. That is, how we study the Scriptures, that's certainly how we understand the Word to be studied, so we encourage you to do that same thing. If you are interested in reading through the Word in a year, which is my encouragement to all of you, continually reading back through the Word, uh, cover to cover in a year, you can do that. There's a trifold out in the foyer. You can pick it up, and that can help take you through, give you the Scriptures to read each day to take you through, and a year from now, you'll uh, read, read through the Bible. If um, you'd rather do it digitally, version is a great place to start. They have a lot of plans, and you can use those to take you through the Bible in a, in a year, and then just continue to do that. That is what the Lord's designed for His Word. It equips us for every good work, and so let me encourage you to make that part of your life. This is our third stop as we have started this new study, Instructions for Teaching and Leading and Equipping. And uh, I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Will you do that? If you're a note taker, you can find on the back of your bulletin. If you can get one, feel free to get up and grab one. You can see a place where you can have some takeaways, and you'll see those on the screen behind me in some underlined areas. Uh, These are things that uh, are important to think about as we work through these main issues in this text as we uh, begin our introduction portion of this study. Verse 1, read along with me in your copy of God's Word. I'm going to read from the New American Standard. You can just read and study along with the one that you memorize and read each day. I'll give you verse cues. We can stay together. Uh, Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we have really focused over the last two weeks, partial sermon last week as we uh, celebrated the Lord's Table, and then the week before, on the Apostle Paul, his background, context of that background, it's something you're familiar with if you've been with us a while as we went through First and Second Corinthians verse by verse and Romans verse by verse. So you're familiar with that, but it was a good review. And as we pointed out last time, the purpose of Paul's letters to Timothy are given to us. If we want to know what the reason for the writing is, we can look at First Timothy 3.14, Paul says, I'm writing these letters, so he answers that question. I'm writing these letters to you, and we saw last time, by the commandment of God, hoping to come to you before long, verse 15, but in case I am delayed, he says, I write so that you'll know how one ought to get to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And we made the point that as you read through the New Testament, obviously, you can make an argument that, that uh, every epistle we've studied takes on how each person is to conduct himself in the church, because being in the church is assumed for believers, that you're always in the church, you're worshiping together in a part of the, uh, the congregation, and so conduct, conduct in the church is assumed, and so 
uh, or participation in the church is assumed, so conduct then is instructed. And it addresses one topic or another, of course, along with personal instruction through doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. That's the point of 2 Timothy 3.16, actually. Uh, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And, th- and that's why the church is to teach it verse by verse through because all of it is inspired by God, and it's all profitable for those things that we just looked at. And so another reason why we do what we do. And then that would include, of course, not only how you should function in the church, how the church should function, but what you should personally do and equipping you for your life. So very, very important that you study and read and put to work those things. Because the, it's the same story throughout all the ages for the church. Uh, the enemy will work on the church in whichever way the church will allow him to work. Uh, whether that's to corrupt theology, or he may attempt to bring apathy, or discord, and divisiveness, or disobedience. Any number of things continue to cycle through the church, and, and, and so he also may bring unfaithful teachers, unfaithful leadership, and you need to be able to know what that looks like. And so uh, we've been on the same track with the Ephesian church. It's very similar all the way through. Uh, first, at the church at its beginning, the gospel comes with Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus who were left there by Paul on a second missionary journey. And he comes back there on his third missionary journey, maybe a year at the most, two years later, where then he stays almost three years as a pastor in that church to establish it. So it's exciting, and it's growing, and it, and it has the fruit of the church that's alive. And then Paul writes to the church from his first imprisonment, maybe eight years later, he has some good things to say, which is the letter to Ephesus, and we've read that before, and you have, uh, no doubt. Uh, but he has to correct some things as well, and so that's not unusual. And he finishes that first imprisonment, and then he visits the church with Timothy. And as we saw last time, he has to put some of the leaders out who were shipwrecking the faith. They were teaching false doctrine. And so he then leaves Timothy there to provide some oversight and leadership among its already established leaders in that particular time. But in the process of moving from the ministry of Paul to the time that Timothy has come there, in those very few years, maybe 10 or 12 years at the most, the church has already reached a place where there is heresy in the teaching. And so it doesn't take long for that to happen for us to get off track, for churches to get off track and begin to teach things that are not consistent with what the Word of God says. And then by the time we get to John on the Isle of Patmos, the church has become totally apathetic and lost its first love. And we've looked at that. It's one of the seven churches of, F, of Asia Minor. And so uh, to get then repeated that it's very hard to think about that you see that often in the church. It gets repeated even in the modern era. Churches over and over, uh, thousands of them, no doubt, every year begin to do some of these things and they're not corrected and begin to go down the wrong path and eventually then that candle is taken away. So... It's hard to think about, but it is how it is, which is why uh, the New Testament continues to be relevant to the church, because it keeps repeating the same mistakes over and over again, and the Lord calls those who lead it to be faithful to do those things and say those things faithfully. So the reason the New Testament gives us these letters is so that we can continually be correcting the same things that will always exist in the life of the church. That's not a surprise to you. We've pointed that out before. Now, here we're talking about Ephesus, and we saw last time Paul comes there after his release uh, with Timothy. And he puts those unfaithful leaders out of the church for correction. And then he puts a young man named Timothy in charge of the leadership. And now let's take some uh, look at this man, Timothy. As I said last week, we'll focus on him for this week and perhaps part of next. Lord willing. 1 Timothy chapter 
4, verse 12, Paul says to Timothy, he says, let no man look down on you on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. And the question is, always comes up, so how old is Timothy? I mean, Paul refers to Timothy in youthfulness, and we picture a youth to be in teenage years. However, Timothy was the leader of a church in Ephesus, which must have been quite large. So the question is, was a teenager left leading the church of this size? And of course, the answer to that is no. The Greek term for youth, neotes, is in the Greek culture, someone would be called a youth until they were 40 years old. So if you're under 40, you know, take heart. You can, you can still be considered a youth. According to Irenaeus, 30 is in the first stage of a young man's age, which extends all the way to 40. In ancient times, uh, the word was used of a military age, which extended up through the 40th year. I think in our own military, uh, it's up through 35. You can, you can enlist and go. So, and even in 20th century Europe, someone through age 40 could be called, and this is just a, a figure of speech, in their first youth. You probably have heard that if you've read anything from that era. Somebody in their first youth is somebody who's 40 or less. And so, that's not an uncommon understanding. And tradition has it that Timothy was about 16 years old when he and his mother were converted to Christianity. This probably occurred during the Apostle Paul's visit to their home in Lystra. Paul had a very close bond with Timothy, and as Paul addresses him as my son, Timothy, and we'll look at that more extensively a little later. But if you remember, um, it's not an uncommon language for Paul to address people that he has led to faith or that he has brought up in the faith as his children. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, uh, Paul is dealing with an arrogant church. We looked at this uh, a number of years ago. And he says to them, he says, uh, who regards you as superior? They obviously do, no one else. Paul's making uh, some, some uh, important comments here. And then he says, what do you have that you did not receive? And of course the rhetorical answer is nothing. And, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Uh, there's no reason for them to be doing that. That's the whole point of his conversation. And then he says, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. So a little, uh, a little satire, a little... Uh, uh, criticism there because of obviously they're not there and indeed I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you for I think he says God has exhibited as apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men in other words it's not what we thought it would be like and perhaps not what you thought it would be like the true apostle is one who's always being having a difficult time from the world because they're always running against the grain of the world we are fools, verse 10, for Christ's sake, but you're prudent for Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished. We're without honor. Verse 11, to this present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, and are homeless. And verse 12, we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. Verse 13, when we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, dregs of all things, even until now. Now mark this, this is Paul's language, and the reason why we read it up to this point. Verse 14, because there he says, I do not write these things to shame you. I'm not saying these things as I reflect on my own personal condition. Of course, he was being a little critical of them earlier, but he's not trying to shame them, but he wants to admonish them. And then mark this, he says, he says, as my beloved children. And so, even those who were rebellious, even those that Paul had brought up and had pastored there for 18 months, uh, he can say to them, even though they're having a difficult time, he calls them my beloved children. 
He brought the gospel to them and now counted them as his children. Verse 15, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would ha- not have many fathers. For as Christ Jesus, mark it, I have become your father through the gospel. So this is how Paul talks to those who he's brought up and those who he's taught and those he's, con- he's brought to faith. Therefore, I exalt you, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Now, look at this point as he talks about Timothy, and I think this will give you an idea of the place where he places Timothy in an understanding of Timothy's responsibility. Verse 17, he says, For this reason, for what reason? So that you can see what a relationship like that, a child-father relationship is supposed to look like, what an imitator should look like. For this reason, he says, I have sent to you, who? Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? His relationship with Timothy was, a spe- was special even in the language of Paul as he referred to the Corinthian church that he had brought to faith and, and tutored and brought up and brought to maturity and had to admonish. Even in that language, Timothy rises above all of that. So there's a special relationship there. And, and tradition has it that Timothy was about 16 years old when he and his mother were converted to Christianity, as we said. And, and this was no doubt due to the fact that it was through Paul's instrumentality that the truth had reached him. And so... Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, he says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, so he reminds Timothy of this, and says, Which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So when Timothy is about 21 years old, he, Silas, accompanied accompanied the Apostle Paul on his second journey uh, through Asia Minor. So Timothy is brought along at this point. And from that time on, for some 16 years, Timothy was closely identified with the Apostle Paul in his service of the truth, even making a trip on Paul's behalf, as we just saw, to the troubled church of Corinth, as we just read. So Paul trusted him enough that in his absence from Corinth, in a difficult situation where there were many rebellious people and many factions, he sends Timothy. And then Paul later left Timothy, as we know, with the church at Ephesus, which is where we are now, so that Timothy might help them overcome some difficulty after putting out two likely elders who were leading the church. And it was while he, he was serving this church that he received the two epistles which we're studying and which bear his name. Timothy was probably around 35 or so when he received the second letter from the Apostle Paul. And so when Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, and faith, love, and purity, show yourself as an example of those who believe, it was probably because older men were generally considered to be wiser than men in their 30s, but he wanted to encourage Timothy, uh, you know, this young pastor, to stand up for himself against some who would want to undermine his authority. So this letter is from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy. Now, that word Timothy is a great word. It's a great name. Uh, if your name is Timothy, Timotheos is the actual two words. Timé is honor and Theos, God. So it's a cool name, one who honors God or he who honors God. The name was probably given to him by his mother and grandmother who were devout Jews uh, because according to 2 Timothy, uh, they taught him the scriptures from his childhood. And as a footnote, it's likely that it was his father who was a pagan Scripture tells us he was Greek, 
He wasn't Jewish. He's not mentioned as a Christian. He's not mentioned as a believer anywhere. It is certainly possible that at the time of Paul's uh, point of Paul's meeting Timothy, the very first time, he may have already passed on. He may have been dead at that point. The lack of influence, though, from uh, the father, regardless of the situation, doesn't seem to be a factor here. Paul doesn't make it a factor. The major influences in his life at Paul's meeting were his mother and his grandmother. And it is, is likely, as we said, that they had named him he who honors God, wishing with all their hearts that he would indeed live up to his name, which in fact he did. His grandmother's name was Lois, according to 2 Timothy 1.5, and his mother's name was Eunice, and they had carefully and faithfully taught him the word of God. In fact, as we look at 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul reminds Timothy, he says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. I'm sure that it's in you as well. He was taught well. He was mo- it was modeled well before him, and he embraced that wholeheartedly. And of course, this is one of the keys to raising godly children. And we're going to see this as we work our way through It is on my heart, of course, with a young church to point these things out. Uh, One of the keys to raising godly children, and and we're going to look at this more in depth when we get here, but he was taught well, it was modeled well before him, and he embraced it wholeheartedly. And then later, we see in 2 Timothy 3.15, he encourages him by saying that from childhood, here it is, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So the sacred writings obviously would be the Old Testament. It wouldn't be anything that we understand to be the New Testament. But because he'd been saturated in it, it had been modeled by his mother and grandmother, he was ready to receive the gospel. And when he did from Paul, he responded eagerly to it, which is the reason why the gospel went forth to the Jews first, to bring them the Messiah, which the prophets had promised. And Timothy recognized this because his parents, his his mother and his grandmother, brought him through those things. And so, he says, you have known... And which is the perfect active indicative, oitis, the perfect tense, the ongoing result of a completed action. What is implied is this completed action. It is you were taught the scriptures, and he knows them, and he continues to know them. And so Eunice and Lois likely gave him this name this wonder, with wonderful significance, and they did their best to teach and to model the scriptures. And this is significant in order to achieve a desired outcome. And we've seen that as we've gone through our God's plan for the family, when you write it on the doorpost and on on the gate and all those kinds of things, and you make sure that they're saturated in the scriptures at all times. Because here's the thing, beloved, parents can, can raise their child in a Christian home, shielding the child from everything worldly, and the child will still choose those things, worldly things, when they're grown. Because without teaching them the scripture to understand them and model them with a sincere faith, the outcome will likely be Marginal Christianity dominated by worldly desires. We see that often in church kids. And, and if you don't model those scriptures, if you don't teach them those scriptures, you don't take the time to make sure they understand them and make sure that you live them in the way that honors the Lord, you can raise them however you want to raise them, but you've missed the main thing. And when they grow up, it'll be marginal Christianity and worldly desires. It's part of the Proverbs 22.6 effort that we've talked about so many times, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he'll not depart from it, which puts the onus on the training, doesn't it? The doing it correctly. And we're not, we don't lack any examples in the Word of God, and so we have to make sure we take those examples and then embody them. What does the Word say? What does it mean by what it says? 
And how does that apply to me? And then bring that to bear on your children. And, and I'll just, I, I, won't, I want to take up a lot of time here because when we get to these passages, we're, gonna, we're going to um, dig into that a little bit, raising godly children done right, but we'll follow up with our applications another time. So there's three things that stand out about Timothy now that we've kind of begun to look at his life. And first one is this, Timothy had a faithful and true godly heritage in his own family. Biblical training from youth, people recognize this even as a young man. In Acts chapter 16, verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and you know that that's where Timothy is from, and a disciple was there named Timothy, he's about 16 years old at that point, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek, and he was well spoken of, mark this, by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. And again, just as a footnote, and we'll get into this more later, that's your desire, isn't it? That your child be godly, not just your opinion that my child is godly, because there's a separate, those are two separate things. Saying my child is godly doesn't make them godly, okay? And, and what we see here is, if they really are godly, he or she really is godly, then other people, other believers will recognize that, see? Not just you. And so, when you raise them correctly, they begin to have that right testimony. Even a child is known by his ways, right? And so, you see that modeled in the child's life as they grow. And we saw that with Timothy. Number two, so Timothy had a faithful and true godly heritage in his own family. Number two, uh, Timothy was a devoted and consistent co-worker and assistant with Paul. We've seen that. Paul regarded Timothy as one of his most trustworthy and dedicated associates. Uh, He was the one to whom he could assign difficult tasks. We've seen some of those uh, at Thessalonica, and we're going to see this later in our study. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, the church is there, and it's having a difficult time. Now, we've already seen him send Timothy to Corinth. We know that Timothy, in our study, is left in Ephesus after a difficult uh, time. But here, look at this in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1. He says, as he's talking about the church, and he knows they're going through a hard time, and these are the churches in Macedonia, and he says to, he says to them in the letter, he says, therefore, when we could endure it no longer. So there was some question about what was going to happen. The church is under severe persecution. And they weren't, he, Paul wasn't sure how they would come up, how, how, they would, how they would manage it. He couldn't endure it any longer, so he thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. What's that mean? That just means he's in Athens with Timothy. He's going to send Timothy, and that's what he does. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker, in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. And I just want to pause right there. So we're talking about a young man who was raised by his mother and his grandmother, who came up in the scriptures, recognized the Messiah, came to faith under the gospel presentation of Paul. This is a young man at this point, in his probably mid-twenties. Paul sends him to Thessalonica, mark it, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. That's, that's remarkable, isn't it? So that no one would be disturbed by those afflictions. That's what we, that's what we aspire for our students, isn't it? As we grow them in, in the faith. We want them as they get older to be able to encourage other believers. If they're solid in their foundation and have a biblical worldview, then they'll be able to encourage those who are faltering a little bit. And that's what we love about biblical teaching and modeling at home and, and uh, corporal punishment. The things that the Lord has put together to raise a godly child. And so Timothy comes and he's able to go the, to them and they were disturbed by afflictions. And verse 3, it says, For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this, for indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, he says, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be 
in vain, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, he has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. So Timothy goes, he encourages them, he encourages them and makes uh, a, a great report when he comes back to the Apostle Paul and says, yes, they're faithful. Yes, the persecution was severe, but it didn't shake where they were. They were firmly grounded, and they're rejoicing in the Lord even in the middle of suffering. And so what a joy that was to, for Paul to hear that, but he trusted Timothy to go and do it. So this is the guy that we're talking about. Uh, Paul trusted Timothy and had great faith in his godliness and his spirituality and his discernment to come back and say, yes, the church is in a stable position. And we see the same trust in Paul's letter to the, the Philippians, as I just had on the slide just a minute ago. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 as he talked to the church of Philippi, uh, another cyclical letter, which was not only supposed to be read there, but other places, he says, but I hope, that the Lord Jesus, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. So it's ba- basically the same situation. Here's this young man with, with Paul. Paul has great, he has great uh, uh, confidence in him. He's going to send them, him to Philippi. For I have, now mark this again, listen to the language here. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That's remarkable, isn't it? I don't have anybody else who's of like mind with me that I trust in the way that I trust Timothy, and I'm going to send him to you. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served me, with, served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. Mark it. No one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Everyone else seeks after their own interests. What a, what a remarkable thing to say about your son in the faith. And so encouraging both to Timothy and to the churches. And there are many other places that we could spend all of our time just looking at those in the New Testament that have the same types of pl- trust placed in him as we looked at in 1 Corinthians 4 already. So, first thing, Timothy had a faithful and true godly heritage in his own family. Timothy, too, was a devoted and consistent co-worker and assistant to Paul that he trusted implicitly. And number three, in regard to uh, his personality and his temperament, and I think it's important to point this out because we're going to see it as we work our way through, equally striking, in the middle of Paul's confidence in him is is, uh, Timothy's apparent timidity and his need for encouragement. And we're going to look at this more as we get to each spot, but in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, he says to Timothy, and you can kind of, again, it's like a phone call where you're only hearing one side of the conversation, but you can get an idea, perhaps, what the situation is when you hear it in context. He says, for God has not given us the spirit of timidity, but of power and love and of discipline. And, and in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, do not be ashamed. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, be strong. And then he says, suffer hardship in chapter 2, verse 3. And as we saw, let no one look down on your youthfulness, as we saw in 1 Timothy 4, 12. Don't neglect the spirit, spiritual gift that God gave you, chapter 4, verse 14. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, chapter 4, verse 16. Guard what's been entrusted to you, he encourages him, in chapter 6, verse 20. And so we can see, and we will see, Timothy's reticence and, and thus his need for encouragement. And many may likely have come from a realistic appraisal of the difficult things he had to deal with. So I, we're not saying that somehow this is a character flaw of Timothy, he just had a realistic approach to this is a difficult situation in the church, and I'm a little unsure of myself about how I'm going to manage it 
And every pastor who's ever been in the pulpit anywhere has had to deal with things and they just go back to their office and just think, I'm not sure how to approach this. And they're going to have to look to the Word and be encouraged by the Word. And so that's not unusual. Somehow it doesn't make Timothy less. But it may be that he was also easily discouraged as a younger man and perhaps a little intimidated by the older folk who were there and some of those who were in leadership who were older. And as he matured, perhaps he overcame some of that tendency to put too much weight in what others would say about him and his own insecurity. And the whole fear of man brings a snare idea where as long as you're worried about what people are saying, you're never going to say what you really need to say. But I like it just because it's a really great reminder that God uses imperfect people. You don't have to have it all together. You're not going to have it all together. You're going to have places where you're weak and you're going to need people around you who are strong in those areas. And this is just a perfect example of that. That in the middle of Paul's confidence in him and all the comments he made and, and how he encouraged the church because he said, I'm going to send Timothy. You know him and he's going to evaluate what's going on there. He'll be an encouragement to you. In the middle of that, we see some, uh, some difficulty and some self-confidence issues and that's not necessarily a bad thing uh, unless it's not based in Scripture and then perhaps it's something that needs to be encouraged and maybe that's why Paul was doing it. But the fact of the matter that God still uses imperfect people to do things for his own glory and that's a good thing, right, for all of us. So this is a really remarkable man. So Timothy now, just to kind of sum it up, is with Paul for up to about 20 years from the time of his conversion as a man in his late teens to the time of about 35 years of age, and he's receiving this letter. All that time he's been with Paul in some kind of ministry, with the exception of the time that he sort of seems to disappear during Paul's first imprisonment, and we understand that, and Paul talks about that and says, no one defended me during that time, and so something was going on there. We don't have any clear idea what it was, but... He was left behind at Berea with Silas when Paul escaped to Athens and later joined Paul there. In due time, he came to Athens in Acts 18. We just saw that he left Athens and went to Thessalonica for a short time, and so we know that. He was there when the collection from the churches was being taken to Jerusalem with Paul in Acts chapter 20. He was with Paul in Corinth when he wrote his letter to Rome. He was Paul's emissary to Corinth, as we saw, when the trouble was in the church. He was with Paul when he wrote 2 Corinthians we saw it was Timothy who went with him to see how things went for him, to see how things were going there in the Macedonian churches. And, and uh, when he wrote, when Paul wrote uh, the, the Thessalonica letter, letterers, he is considered a co-author, co-writer, because he's named as part of those who were sending the letter. We, um, we know that he was with Paul in prison when he wrote the letter to the Philippians, and again, is considered a co-writer. Some of the writing of Colossians and uh, Philemon, sir, he's considered the co-writer, co-author there as well, and he's named as the one who is sending it. So he's constantly with him. He's a beloved disciple. He had the Jewish heritage to have access to the synagogue where Paul always began his ministry, so there was going to be no problem there. And he had the Greek background to understand the culture and be accepted by Gentiles as well. So he, he was set up by the Lord to have the things that he needed after he was discipled by Paul to be effective with the church. So he was an exceptional and unique tool of God, fitted for the work God had laid out for him, fitted to the name that no doubt his mother and grandmother uh, wanted him to attain. Now, in the time remaining, we just have a few minutes. I want to look at a few things. And uh, look at verse 2, if you would, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The letter says to Timothy, now mark this, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then just kind of a comparison, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus reiterates the job for every believer. It's part of our purpose statement, and you know this. 
But Jesus comes and he speaks to them and he says to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, mark this, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, obviously, it should be the major goal of every believer to desire to reproduce spiritual children. Paul says, Timothy, my true child in the faith. We've read numerous examples of Paul as he refers to the churches as his children and he their father. So I don't think you can make any argument. It's a given that you're supposed to reproduce yourself. And of course, and and listen, of course you're supposed to reproduce yourself in your own physical, biological children. That's a given that they're supposed to be brought up as disciples. That's not what we're talking about specifically like Lois and Eunice did with Timothy. In fact, we'll see um, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1 that if you don't bring up your own children in subjection to you and in subjection to the Lord and they walk in dissipation, then you can't even serve in church leadership if you don't accomplish that. That's a given. As a believer, you're supposed to bring up a godly generation to follow. And as we looked on Mother's Day, part of the teaching of a mom, part of the effectiveness of a mom is to what? Is to bring up faithful children. But what Jesus is talking about here and what Paul is expressing in his identification of Timothy is something else altogether. You and I are to reproduce ourselves over and over again in the lives of other people. This is your job, and that's my job too. That is to bring them to Christ and to nurture them to maturity in Christ as we just saw in the Great Commandment, the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's just so clear. It's, it's given to us five times in the Gospels. It's very clear that we're supposed to do it. Paul models it over and over again. In 2 Timothy 2, 2, in fact, Paul identifies exactly what that process is supposed to look like. In 2 Timothy 2, 1, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So grow up and do the things that we've taught you to do. Be strong in that grace. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, in other words, you grew under that teaching just like others have, and they saw you receive it. In that presence of them, so it's always that witness, Hebrews chapter 12, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, right? Run the race to get the prize. I mean, it's always those who've come before, those who are along with you, always witness what's going on and become that motivation, along with being pleasing to Christ, to do the things they're supposed to do. And so the things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses market. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So this is this process that's supposed to continue. Paul tells Timothy to follow the same sequence in the responsibility and in the discipling process that he received from the Apostle Paul. We're supposed to be reproducing ourselves. We should be in the process of building up another generation of reproducing believers to follow ourselves. Listen, you have a circle of friends, no doubt. And you spend a lot of time with them, many of them very dear to you. And you should be reproducing yourself in their life. As a mature believer, you should be bringing up those who will understand those things and also go to live that way. It's, a, it's everybody's responsibility. It's part of the Great Commission. And certainly Paul gives us that wonderful example. So Paul tells Timothy, use that same sequence of responsibility and reproduce yourself. Obviously, we know that Paul had a lot of things going on in his life, just like you and I do. Obviously, he was evangelizing both in the synagogue and in Gentile communities, dodging persecution, 
suffering hardship, having a difficult time on the road, traveling, all the things we looked at. He was involved in planting and building up churches and then dealing with rebellions and all the stuff that goes on. But he was also involved in this matter of discipling individuals to maturity. His desire was, and then by example, our desire should be to bring many to the place where he could say to them, as he said to Timothy, and you can say to those who are, who are around you, you are my genuine child in the faith. You, that is, you're a replica, not of your own worldliness, not of your, your past history, whatever, but of faithfulness to the gospel and presenting a, a life that's growing in maturity and sanctification. So you're reproducing yourself in that way. You're a reproduction. You bear my image and character and ministry. And that's such a joy to be able to do that. And then to see that happen and see people go and be that kind of person in their sphere of influence, that's how the church multiplies and grows and grows in depth. My true child, he says, in the faith. And uh, that um, true is the adjective nasios. It kind of, it's where we get our word in English, nascent. It's, it's uh, potential, future potential. It's genuine, sincere, my true child in the faith. These were qualities about Timothy that proved his identity. Things were going on in Timothy's life that made it clear that he was growing in sanctification and knowledge of Jesus in spirit and truth. And so these were obvious. He wasn't perfect. No one is, and we, we looked at that. But they proved his identity we saw some places where Timothy struggled. We're going to see more of that as we work our way through this letter. It's just that Timothy continued in the things that he had learned and heard and seen in the Apostle Paul. And what a joy that is to be able to say uh, to the Corinthians, like we saw earlier, I want you to be like me. And so I'm sending someone because he is like me, and he'll be an example for you to follow. What does that look like? And then it's not subjective, it's objective. This is what it looks like to be mature in the faith. This is what it looks like to be able to manage yourself in difficult times. See, Not just what does the parent think, it actually, the reality of it as it lines up with the scriptures. Now, there were lots of people that Paul interacted with. And we could spend a lot of time looking at a bunch of names. And we're going to see some at the end of, of all of these letters. And not all of them could be called his true child in the faith. He was always busy discipling and helping and building, but not all of them worked out. I'd like you, if you would, I'm not going to put a slide up, I just want you to um, turn here. Look, look to, to um, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Will you do that? Just hold your finger here and flip over a few pages, and you'll be there. 2 Timothy 4, verse 9, and we're going to read there, and I'm not going to comment on it because we're going to spend a lot of time in it when we get there, but this is part of that introduction, and in introducing these things, the Bible explains the Bible, so you have to use it and in context to understand as we said, when you set up a new study, you have to know what's going on in the life of the writer and what's going on in the life of the, receive, the person receiving the letter, what's going on in, in, in Ephesus. I mean, in order for us to interpret it correctly, you can't just go haphazardly through it. You have to know what the backgrounds of both are so that when you see these things presented, you understand how to take them in their context. And this is one of those places. So 2 Timothy chapter, uh, two, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. And verse 9 says this. It says... Um, Make every effort to come to me soon. So Paul is in prison for the second time. He's lonely. Uh, he is discouraged. And for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So there's our first stop. This is somebody Paul poured his life into, Demas. Demas wasn't a true son in the faith. He wasn't even a faithful believer. 
back uh, in, in Timothy's letter to the Colossians, when Timothy was there writing with Paul, he sends Demas to greeting the church. He, in Colossae, he mentions Demas' name and says, he also greets you. So obviously Paul's pouring into him. Obviously he's spending some time with, with Demas. But here he says, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to the, uh, Dalmatia. Only Luke, verse 11, is with me. Pick up Mark. So the other ones are going on, uh, no doubt, uh, errands for Paul. And he doesn't say anything negative about Crescens. He doesn't say anything about, negative about Titus. And then he says, Luke is with me right now. And then he says in the letter, he says, pick up Mark. And if you remember, uh, Mark is the one who Paul had a disagreement with, with Barnabas, about taking him along because he hadn't been faithful. And he split, remember, part of the way through and went back. And Paul's like, I'm not taking him again. And Barnabas says, well, I'll take him. And then they split and went different directions. So obviously somebody Paul had poured himself into and had begun to mature. So Paul says, hey, please bring Mark with you, for he's useful to me for service. Now, just quickly look at these names of those that Paul is actively interacting with, along with the ones we just saw, and discipling. Verse 12, look there. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, so he's doing something for Paul. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus. So he spent some time with Carpus, obviously his coat's there, bring it to me. And the books, especially the parchments, and then here's another one that didn't work out. Alexander the coppersmith, no doubt Paul interacted with him, desired to see him come to faith, disciple him, he says of Alexander. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Verse 15, be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Verse 16, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. So a little bit of uh, admonition among those Paul had discipled. Many had, had bailed, uh, no doubt worried and scared about what was going on. Verse 17, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 19, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Verse 20, Erastus remained at Corinth. For Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Now, I just said that. and we'll, we'll chase a lot of those names down. They don't mean anything to us, really, other than the ones perhaps where letters are named or, or we've already read through them. But we'll chase some of those down when we get there. But these are all men to whom Paul poured himself. And I think that's important to mention that as busy as he was and as difficult as his life was, he still was taking time every time he had an opportunity. When he saw someone who was interested in growing, he spent the time with them and brought them up. Among all the other things, he was reproducing himself. And in Timothy, Paul had the opportunity to reproduce himself to the point that he could send him in his stead with good confidence. Now, there are some Clues to what it looks like to reproduce a true child in the faith. So again, as I said before, it's not subjective. And I don't want to leave it out there as if it is. And so next week we're going to go through a couple of the points I think that can help us as we look through the book. And it'll be the last part of our introduction to Timothy. But they also will overlap with our own biological children. So I think there'll be a double benefit to see what that's supposed to look like as we're reproducing ourselves and what it looks like to have a true child in the faith will help you analyze what's going on in your own life too. 
and that's going to be helpful. We'll look at that next time. But Paul has a genuine son in the right place, and, and to strengthen Timothy, he has a greeting. He says, grace and mercy and peace from our God, our Father, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's just such a wonderful thing. We, when we read that the first time in our very first stop on the letter two weeks ago, I said, you know, that's been lost on the church for the most part. Um, we've, we've missed that. The whole greet each other with a holy kiss, as we understand, it's, it wasn't anything that had to do with, with attraction. It had to do with, with um, love and genuineness. So it gets rid of all pretense when you're doing that, just like foot washing. You can't have pretense if you're kneeling at somebody's feet and washing them. See? And this is one of those things, too, as you, as you truly greet somebody, you say, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It's lost on us, but it has, it has a marvelous understanding. And they're there because he knows that Timothy is going to need all of them, like we all do. But Timothy is going to be dealing with problems and his own problems and his situation. And grace, grace refers to God's undeserved favor, doesn't it? His love, his forgiveness given to sinners to free them from the consequences of sin. And that's a wonderful thing to remind us of. That's many of the times when we worship together in music, we spend a lot of time making sure we're not singing songs that are theologically incorrect. We want to make sure that you worship the Lord in spirit and truth. And grace is one of those things that we worship the Lord for, his undeserved favor. And mercy doesn't free us from the consequences of sin, it frees us from the mercy that comes along with sin. Grace, mercy is a wonderful thing that the Lord gives us constantly. And we sin and then we don't get what we deserve and we don't have the misery that comes along with it because he took it all on himself on the cross. Grace wipes out the sin, mercy wipes out the misery, and then there's this word, peace. Peace is the result of grace and mercy. It uh, not only is it harmony with God, but really tranquility of the soul. And that's his prayer for Timothy. It's what he wants to have happen and have Timothy see. And so he says to Timothy, this is my wish for you, grace, because grace is not just needed at salvation, is it? We need grace after salvation, don't we? Constantly. He just needs to keep on cleansing us, and that's why we go and ask him for forgiveness, and in his grace, he does that. We stand in grace. We saw that in Romans 5, didn't we? We stand in grace. And mercy's not just needed at salvation. Don't we need mercy to keep delivering us from the misery of sin? Every day? We do. And don't we always need peace? Every single day we need peace, don't we? And it's a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, peace in your life indicates the Lord's actively helping you grow. To maturity. You having peace helps you understand that God's at work in your own life. And again, he emphasizes, and I just love this, it's from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So he just highlights this very personal relationship God and Jesus have with every believer. From them to us. Okay, So don't confuse that with the fallacy of false teaching today, which is I have my own personal Jesus. I pick and choose what parts of him I want. This is the other way. This is this marvelous personal relationship that God pours these things out on every individual that has repented and come to faith. So the whole thing is really introduced to us in those two verses. I know we spent about two weeks worth of sermons looking at them, and just part of one I think next time we'll probably cover it, but Paul has this tremendous passion for this Ephesian congregation because he had three years of his own life invested there. He wants them to listen, so he lays down his credentials as strongly as he can and then indicates that he'll 
do it in Titus. God has instructed me to write this, and he commanded me, and I gave it to Timothy, and we'll see Titus 2 as well. says, God commanded me to write this to you so you'll be able to manage the church as he should. And he gives Timothy all this weight that he can by saying he's, he's a true reproduction of me. And then he asks God to pour out on Timothy continuing grace and continuing mercy and continuing peace that he can carry out the work that he's commissioned to do. We, we can pray that for people too, can't we? They have mercy and grace and peace. We pray that for Alex and his family right now. They need, that, they need that encouragement and that buildup that the Lord says he'll provide. A couple of things we know. We know that Timothy stayed at Ephesus. He died as a martyr there, as a matter of fact. Fox's Book of Martyrs, if you're familiar with that, states that Timothy's death occurred about A.D. 97 during the reign of Domitian. This would place Timothy's martyrdom shortly after the exile of the Apostle John to the island of Patmos, which occurred around A.D. 95. According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, quote, as the pagans were about to celebrate a feast called Katagogia, in which the participants would dress in costumes, masks, and partake in sexual immorality, Timothy, meeting the procession, severely reproved them for their idolatry and is reported as saying, men of Ephesus, do not be mad for idols, but acknowledge the one who is truly God which so exasperated the people that they fell upon him with their clubs and beat him in a dreadful manner, end quote. While Timothy was still barely alive, some fellow Christians took him away from the mob, and when he died two days later, they buried him in a place called the Peon of Ephesus. So, that sounds right, doesn't it? Paul's true son in the faith, until the end of his earthly life, sounds like any number of Paul's experiences as he went through his life, doesn't it? Beatings and thrashings and whippings and stonings because he confronted the sinfulness of the city, because he confronted the wicked leaders, because he confronted the Gentiles. Don't worship the goddess of Diana. What happened? He gets hauled up to the front. They have to get him out of there. Damascus, he's confronting wicked leaders. They have to let him out of the basket. So this is precisely the type of son Paul had raised, wasn't it? And he understood that the truth was the truth, and he was there to proclaim it, and if he didn't proclaim it, no one was going to, and so he made sure it was clear. And the Bible doesn't record the happenings of Timothy's later life and death. We have that by tradition. But it does include some of Paul's final exhortations to his friend, and that, I think, is informative. Paul urged Timothy to, quote, fight the good fight of faith. Remember? Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, 1 Timothy 6.11. In other words, hold on to it as your hope. Paul says, I face death daily. And there were sometimes we feared for our life, but we also believed in a God who could raise us from the dead. Remember when we studied all that? So he just tells Timothy, hey, just take hold of eternal life, which you have confessed already. Because that's going to be your hope. You have eternal life. Yes, the Lord can preserve you. Yes, he can take you home, either one. But it's your hope is to be with him. And I was just imagining as I was finishing this up in my office this week, it just what a glorious reunion that must have been when Timothy entered eternity on that exit note. Paul's probably going, yeah, that's exactly right. That's precisely what you, the timidity was gone, wasn't it? The big group coming to worship at an idol, he intercepts them and says, this is exactly what Paul, don't, don't worship an idol, worship the true God. Just like Paul said in Athens, you know, the God you say is the unknown God, I'm proclaiming to you, this is the one who's the real God. And there's, Tell us more about this, Paul. So he starts talking about Jesus. Oh, man, what's this seed picker have to say? This guy doesn't know anything. Paul didn't care about that. What he cared about is that 
he gave out the truth faithfully, and it was pleasing to the Lord before whom he had a clear conscience. And we know that that was how Timothy entered glory. So he took those exhortations from Paul to heart. He proclaimed the gospel boldly in Ephesus, spreading the good news of Christ's death and his resurrection, and discipling and reproducing himself and overseeing the church, and like all those who were true disciples, paying the cost of faithfulness. So we'll pick up here next week, Lord willing, take a look at some of the Timothy's character traits, uh, traits that mark a true disciple and a true child in the faith, and I think that'll be very encouraging for us and a way that we can mark our own progress as we disciple those who are around us in our friendship group and our own children as well. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer if you would. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We're grateful for how clear it is. I pray that you'll guide us as we work our way through it verse by verse, that you might instruct us in the things that we should know, that we would then, as we understand what it says, what it means by what it says, begin to act that way. You were very clear as you carried Paul along to write it. I wrote this so you'll know how to conduct yourself in the church. And so there'll be plenty of things for us to know here that have to do with how we treat people and how we raise children and, and all the things that we do and that we say. And so, Lord, I pray that you just guide us. We're looking forward to this letter. It's exciting to know what we'll learn and how we'll be able to apply that as you bring opportunities to our lives. We particularly think about... Um, Alex and his family, who no doubt will be traveling soon, I pray that you give them journey mercies, grace, peace, mercy, strength, and words to say, comfort. Lord, we thank you that you are already providing those things. We know that uh, in the comfort that we've received from Christ, we comfort other people, and this comfort he's receiving now will be Father, certainly for his own comfort to others. And Father, we thank you for uh, a great time that we were able to have today. Thank you for the blessing it is to be together in faith around the word, doing simple things that the church has done since your son's departure. And Lord, we look forward to his return, and we want to be found faithful when he comes. So help us to be a church like that. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his sake.